We're on chapter 27, paragraph 2. And this chapter is on the communion of the saints. Communion of the saints. So we'll do chapter 27, paragraph 2. Then after we have our Bible study, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll have our Bible study. Father, we thank you for uh, the time to be together today, Lord, to meet uh, with your people, Lord, to open up your word, Lord, to be uh, fed from you, Lord, from the very word of life. And Father, we do pray that today as we uh, continue to study, Lord, concerning our communion that we have both with you and with one another, Lord, that you would build us up into a, um, a fellowship, Lord, a body of believers, Lord, that we would be bound together uh, in common faith and in love for one another, Lord, that we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Lord, help us to always remember that our salvation is, Lord, not merely some, something that impacts us as an individual, but the, Lord, when you save us, you bring us into the body of Christ, and you join us together with one another. And that, Lord, we are to uh, be as one, and Lord, to care for each other and to be concerned about one another. And so, Father, we do pray that you would bind us together with love and that, Lord, you build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 27, and we are on paragraph 2. We'll read the paragraph and then we'll uh, look up the scriptures. It says, saints by profession are obligated to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. They are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships they have in their families and churches. Yet the rule of the gospel also directs them, as God provides opportunity, to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. Here, the chapter or this paragraph is talking about the fellowship, the communion that we have with God and with one another, and how that obligates us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That when we are, again, saved, we are engrafted into Christ, and when each of us are engrafted into Christ the head, we become a part of his body. And so we are individually members one of another, that we belong to each other, and none of us exist for our own interest only, for our own good only, but we are all to exercise and live out our Christian life for the good of our brothers, right? For the good of one another. And this is an obligation that we have, a good obligation, right? Obligations aren't bad if they are rightly directed, and we are obligated through faith and through the commandment of God to have this type of fellowship and communion with one another, right? In both worshiping God and performing other spiritual services to promote their mutual edification. So when we worship God, we're doing so not only for our own benefit, right? Because it is a benefit to us to come and worship God, not only to give glory to God, right? We should do that, and it does give glory to God, but also to benefit one another, right? To benefit 
the whole body of Christ. So if we neglect those things, we do so to our own detriment and also to the detriment of others, right? You are to love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love ourselves in the proper way, so we shouldn't neglect the worship of God because that is harmful to our own body and soul. We are also to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love our neighbor. So if we neglect the worship of God, then how am I loving my brother in Christ? I can't love him if I'm not here with him. And then chiefly, we are to love God above all others. And if we neglect the worship of God, then how can we love God? So when we meet together, we are fulfilling all of these obligations and duties. We are meeting and obeying the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We do this when we gather together and when we open up the Word of God. Right? How we treat or how we view the Word of God and the body of Christ. This shows whether we truly love God. And we do all of this at one time when we gather together, when we meet together for our worship of God and performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. And this is an obligation that we are called to maintain together, holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and performing the services of mutual edification. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll start reading in verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are called to hold fast our confession without wavering, right? So we have to hold fast to our confession. The profession of faith we made at our conversion, we have to hold fast to this confession without wavering, to the very end, throughout the course of our life. And then we are also to stimulate one another to this as well, to love and good deeds. Because it's not enough that I myself persevere, but I want all of you to persevere as well. I want all of you to endure. And so this is how we help one another. We stimulate, we stir one another up to love and good deeds, to living the Christian life. And how do we do that? By not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, right? Even here in the first century, there were church skippers, right? People who were not taking it seriously, who were hit and miss, cavalier, right? In their approach to the worship of God, right? Twofers, that's what we call them, twofers. They show up uh, twice a month, right? Twice a month or twice a year, whatever, whatever they want to be. Well, no, he says we can't do that, right? We can't do that. Why? Because the day is drawing near. What day is drawing near? The day of the Lord. Yes, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So every day we live, we get one day closer to the day of the Lord. 
And so every day we have a greater incentive to draw together, to assemble together, to encourage one another to love and good deeds because we're one day closer, right? One, either way you slice it, whether it is the return of Christ, it's one day closer every day, or if it's our death, it's one, every day we live, we're one day closer to death. So in any way you look at it, we are one day closer to standing before the Lord. And how do we want to be when we stand before him? Well, we don't want to be those who shrink back. We want to be those who hold fast to our confession firm to the end. And how are we going to do that by ourselves? We can't. We've got to have each other. So this is the incentive for us to not forsake assembling together for our own good and also for the good of others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So here, the warning is to make sure that we don't have an evil unbelieving heart like the wilderness generation they're the example they had spurious momentary faith right they did leave Egypt they did follow Moses right in some regard but it didn't last very long did it no sooner did they get out that they were grumbling and wanting to go back and they were disobedient and so what happened to them they fell in the wilderness. And what happened to them in the wilderness is a sign, a symbol, a picture of what will happen to them on the day of judgment, right? Because they did not enter into the rest of God on earth and they will not enter into the rest of God in the life to come. And this because they had an evil and an unbelieving heart, even though they had Moses as their pastor. You don't have Moses as your pastor. You don't have anything close to Moses as your pastor. They had Moses but they failed to enter. They experienced and saw the miracles of God, all the wonders that he performed upon Egypt. They ate manna from heaven. They drank water out of the rock. They saw and experienced all of these blessings, these spiritual blessings, but they did not enter because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. And he's warning us, you better make sure you don't have a heart like that because if you do, then you're gonna have the same outcome as them. They didn't enter and neither will you. And how will we overcome the evil, unbelieving heart? Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? One of the means established by God so that we would overcome sin is the encouragement of the saints. We encourage one another to love and good deeds, and we warn each other, we admonish each other, don't go back to sin. Don't go and chase after sin. No, put those things away and strive after the kingdom of God. 
And it is the encouragement of the saints that helps us overcome the deceitfulness of sin. So we have an obligation to this to one another. Next, it says, They are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. Our primary need is always the spiritual, and that is what we should be chiefly concerned with. But also, whenever one of the saints, the brothers, has a material need, then we should help, assist, according to our ability and according to the need. Right? We are to do this, and this is one of the practical ways that we show our love for God and our love for one another. If we see our brother and he doesn't have what he needs, and we have the ability to meet that need, and yet we close up our heart against him, how can the love of God dwell within us? It's impossible. We cannot have the love of God if we do not meet the needs of our brothers. But how are we going to know about our brothers' needs if we're not with them, if we don't see them, if we're not aware of what's going on in their life? Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 27 It says, Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. In the the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So here, when this prophet Agabus indicates by the Spirit, so he's not a false prophet, he's a true prophet, and God, through the Spirit, has revealed to him that there is going to be a great famine that comes upon the entire world. They take it upon themselves to preemptively provide an offering for the saints in Judea, knowing that they're going to have a need, that there's going to be a very difficult time come upon them. They're already in a difficult situation. It's going to be made worse by this famine, and they're going to have a need in regards to material things. And so what do they do? They take up an offering to send to the church in order to help alleviate the needs of the saints. And in proportion to what they had, right? In proportion, meaning the one who had more gave more, the one who had less gave less, but all of them were giving something, right? In proportion to their own means, they each determined to send a contribution to relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they would have done cheerfully, cheerfully, happily, with great joy to share in this opportunity. Next. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships that they have in their families and churches. Here, the principle is that our immediate closest neighbors should be the first attention of our love, but not the only attention, right? It should go out to others as well. So, for example, in the home, right, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. The husband's closest neighbor is who? is his wife, and then after that, his children, and then his other family. So his obligation is to first love his wife, then his children, then his other family as it goes out and as it extends. And we have that obligation. In the same way, in the church, this is our church, right? We know one another, 
If we see someone with a need here, that's our first obligation, to meet the needs of those who are among us, and then it goes out from there as other needs come to our attention. But especially, we should do this for one another because we are in constant communion with one another. We're around each other all the time. Right? How can I go and help others in their spiritual life if I'm not doing that for my own wife and children in my home? Right? Then I would be a fraud. I'd be a hypocrite. If I'm telling others outside of my home that these things are very important, these are issues of life and death, these are eternal matters, these are the most important matters of life, and you really need to give attention to them. And I'm busy out there telling other people about that, but then in my own home, I never talk to my wife and children about the things of God. Wouldn't that be a hypocrite? Right? How can I talk about it out there but not do it in the home? First, I should do it where? in the home, and then do it out there, right? It's not one or the other. They both go together all the time. And this is how it should be in our love for the church. First, the ones that are here with us, but not to the exclusion of those who are outside. It is here first and then there, right? We do all of these things for the sake of the brethren. So especially in the relationships they have in their families and in their churches, Our first obligation is to the family and then to the churches, the churches that we are a part of. And then as opportunity arises and as we become aware of some need somewhere else, then we can meet those needs as well. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 verse 1. says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here, the children and the parents, the children and the parents, the children are to first obey their parents. This is the immediate authority over them, and they ought to offer obedience first to their parents. What good is it for them to conduct themselves in one way out in public when in the home they are rebellious, seditious, and they don't obey their parents? How can they be Christian children if they're doing that? They can't. So they need to first learn to be obedient in the home to to the parents. And then fathers, don't provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The father, even the pastor of the church, he, if he's a father, as I am, who should he be training first and foremost? In the home, right? In the children. And if a man won't do that in his home, he has no business being a pastor. How can he get up and teach other people when he won't even teach his own wife and his own children? And this should be one of the tests that we put out, the training ground, Right, for those who might enter into the ministry or might be elevated to the position of elder. How are they doing with their own home? If they can't manage their own household, how are they going to manage that household of faith? Right? They can't do it. So test them in the home first. So the obligation to the family, to the family first, and then also to the churches. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And we'll read verses 14 to 27. First Corinthians 12, 
14. It says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body with which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So there, this very clear uh, illustration or metaphor of what the church is like. Right? Individual members that all combine to make up one body. One body. If one is blessed, all are blessed. If one suffers, all suffer. If one isn't performing his function, it's going to, benefit, it's going to be uh, harmful to everyone else. But if each one is doing what God has called them to do, then the whole body is going to work together and it's going to be built up in the proper way. And this is the way that we have to be toward one another. Right? We have to see that we are individuals, yes, individual members, but one of another. We all together make up one body in Christ. So how can we have rivalries, jealousies, dissensions, right? How can we do these things, right? That would be like the foot attacking the hand, right? Or the eye attacking the ear, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's all part of the same body. So if you attack another part of the body, you're harming yourself, right? You're hurting yourself. It's a detriment to your own good. And this is how it is within the church. So this is why we should live in unity. We should live in love, in peace, in harmony, right? Not superficially, right? Not uh, peace with sin, not peace with uh, disobedience and unrighteousness. We can't have unity with that, but in faith, in faith, in the word of God, right? One common faith, right? The same spirit, the same Christ, the same baptism. And when we're all pursuing the same things, rightly, then there will be peace, harmony, unity in the church, and it'll be beneficial to everyone. And that's what we should strive for in our churches. Okay, next. It says, yet the rule of the gospel also directs them as God provides opportunity to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This is like we read earlier from Acts chapter 11. They were in Antioch. They were in a different part of the world. They weren't in Jerusalem or in Judea. But when they found out about the need there, they sent help to them. They didn't just say, we're only concerned with the churches in Antioch, right? Because this is our proximity. Or we got to take care of ourselves first and not think about other people. No, we can't have that attitude. We first, 
yes, we need to take care and make sure that things are going and that people have what they need here, but not to the exclusion of others. If there is need in a true church somewhere else, and we have the ability to meet that need, we have an obligation to do that, right? We should help in whatever way that we can. Not just our own church, not just our own poor, not just our own widows, but wherever they are, if they're true believers and we can help them and we become aware of the need, then we should give assistance in however way that we can. Okay, nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. We are not communists. We are Christians, not communists, okay? Actually, you cannot be a Christian communist because they're contradictory. It is impossible for that to be the case. Yes, in terms of obligation, in terms of love, what is mine belongs to you. In that, I should willingly share what God has given to me with you. But that doesn't mean you have a right to come into my home and to take by force what belongs to me and take it to your house and say, well, what's yours is mine, so there's nothing you can do about it because we're all part of the same body. Right? He, it, the Bible doesn't teach that we lose the right of individual ownership when we become Christians. Yes, yes we have the obligation to willingly help our brothers, and in that regard, we will do that, but they don't have the right to come and take what is ours by force. It is ours. We can give it freely if we choose, but we don't have to all the time, right? We can still have that which is ours, and I can't come and take your car and say, well, I'm the pastor, so, uh, and, uh, you know, everything, we all exist for one another, so it's, it's mine today. I would go after uh, Mr. Adolph's Corvette out there probably or, or some, something else. Uh, that's what we would do. Well, no, you can't do that. And there have been uh, Christian traditions or various, usually cults, that practice this. They say it's all common. Everything is held commonly. And what ends up happening is you have common misery and common laziness, right, because no one wants to work. Right? Actually, they tried this in Jamestown whenever America was founded. In the first year, it was a complete disaster. Right? They were just going to have a common, we're all going to work together, and it's, everyone's going to uh, work for everyone else's benefit, and no private ownership of anything, and no building up of your own wealth or your own estate. And it was utter misery because people wouldn't work. This is how it is in communist countries. Right? If your quota is uh, you know, 20 uh, squares of potatoes, whatever it is that you've got to bring, and you get to 20, and then everything above that, you don't get any benefit from it. Well, why am I going to go out and pick potatoes all day long if I've already met my quota, if I'm not getting any benefit from it? And people will say, well, isn't that greedy? No, it's not greedy. It's common sense. This is, this is how people are. If you work, you should get a reward for your labor. That's not greed, right? This is justice. It's fairness. It is what is good and right. And if there's no benefit, no value for me working, then why am I going to work? Don't we see this in our own country right now? All the, uh, I, I know I used to have these conversations with my dad on the way to work, <clears throat> who would work from January to the end of May to pay his taxes. Five months a year to pay his taxes. And then he got to work for himself and seeing able-bodied people walking around town during the middle of the day, drinking sodas, smoking cigarettes, carousing, doing whatever. 
Why am I going to work all day long and these people are sitting around doing nothing? How are they able to live? Who's paying for them to live? He was. We are, right? My, my inheritance was deprived, right, because of these people. This is what's happening. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not right. If a man will not work, neither let him eat. That's not unloving. It's very loving. It's loving to me, and it's loving to you, and it's loving to our children and grandchildren to not take our money and give it to some bum who's unwilling to work, but who is perfectly capable of doing so. So the Bible teaches private ownership, private property. And the government, their obligation, their job should be to protect the private property of the citizens so that we get to keep as much of our hard-earned money as possible and not have it stolen by the IRS given to the government so that they can squander on any number of utterly useless, worthless programs. And then many things are sinful and wicked, right? That is true tyranny. When they take money from the citizens and force us to pay for abortions, are they not doing that today? Are they not forcing us to pay for people to be mutilated so that a man can pretend to be a woman and a woman can pretend to be a man? They're forcing us to pay for this with our own money, depriving us and our children of happiness, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, contrary to everything. Okay, so any, any notion, any idea of common good, of oh, it's all one big pot, one big pool, what's mine is yours, yours is mine. The Bible does not teach any of that. The Bible teaches private property, and that you have a right to your property, and that no man can come and take by force. You can freely give it if you want, but they cannot come and take it. In terms of horizontal, man to man, this is mine and it's not yours. This is yours and it's not mine. I don't have a right to come and take what belongs to you and you don't have a right to come and take what belongs to me. Now, I have an obligation in the gospel if you have a legitimate need, legitimate need, not illegitimate, a legitimate need, I have an obligation to willingly, cheerfully, gladly, freely give a portion, whatever I determine, to you to help meet your need. And you have the same obligation to me, but I can't come and say, the gospel obligates you, so I'm taking 20% of your income, and it's all going to come to me. That's not in the Bible. Now, in terms of our relationship to God, we do not have individual ownership. God owns everything, and we are stewards of what God has given to us. But in terms of man to man, we do have ownership. You have your possessions, I have mine. And here, what they're talking about is we are to freely give, cheerfully, joyfully, because of our love for one another, but no one has the right to the title to come and say, well, it's not yours, it's mine, because we're all in the same church. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So we can't be thieves and steal from one another. Uh, Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for themselves with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. So here, in terms of what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, notice in verse 4 that Peter acknowledges that the property was their property. No one forced them to sell it, right? When it remained unsold, it was yours. It's yours. We didn't tell you to sell it. We didn't force you to do that. After it was sold, it was under your control. You sold it. You got the money. You can do whatever you want with it. If you only want to give half, then just give half. But don't lie about it and don't say that you're giving everything. Right? That's what they're doing. That's the sin. The sin is that they sold it. They announced to everyone that they sold this piece of property and they're giving all of the proceeds to the church when in reality they only gave half of the proceeds to the church and half of it they kept back for themselves in order to make themselves look more righteous, to make themselves look more holy. And he's saying to them, this, is, this sin is completely, it's nonsense. It's utterly useless. It's your property. Do whatever you want with it. You don't have to sell it. And then if you do sell it, it's under your control. If you only want to give half, give half. Just don't lie about it. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. So no one made you sell it, and no one told you what to do with it, but you lied to the Holy Spirit. So there, Peter is recognizing that it's your property, and you can do whatever you want with it. No one is forcing you to do these things. Ephesians chapter 4, their sin was that they lied. That's what they, where they sinned. They lied about it in order to make themselves look better. But you cannot lie to God. Ephesians 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is who has need. So one who stole before, he says, quit stealing. Yeah, you cannot be a Christian thief, right? Impossible. So no, no Christian thieves. So don't steal any longer. That's why we said earlier you can't be a Christian communist because they're thieves, thieves and liars. Okay, so you can't steal any longer, but rather he must labor, meaning get a job. Go get a job, work, with your own hands, doing what is good, right? So not working with what is evil, not a sinful job, but a good, honest job, right? With your own hands, work, and then you'll have something to share with one who has a need. Instead of taking from people, now you're going to be able to share with people, right? And by sharing, does that not assume that it's freely sharing? No one's coming and taking it from him, right? You used to take stuff from people, but you don't want people taking stuff from you. So now you're going to be able to share. You're going to freely, willingly be able to give to someone else. You'll have something to share with anyone who has a need. Okay, then one last passage. 2 Kings chapter 4. This goes with 
all with all of this. I like to use these Old Testament examples for two reasons. One, they're good examples. And then secondly, to show the continuity between our faith and their faith. That what we're expected to practice toward one another in the New Testament is what was being practiced in the Old Testament as well. This is the way that they were living. So loving one another, caring for one another, sharing with one another, looking out for each other's needs. Right? This was not something that was, is just expected in the New Testament. This has always been the case, right? Because the two great commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. 2 Kings 4, verse 8. says, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, uh, Shunem, and there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God, passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled-up chamber and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And it shall be that when he comes to us, that he can turn in there. So here, Elisha, who is the prophet of God, and according to his prophetic role, he would have to travel throughout the various regions to preach the gospel. Okay, this is what he's doing. He's going here and there, proclaiming the word of God, doing the ministry of God. Well, this prominent woman, he goes often through this area near Shunem, and this woman there perceives him, notice him, that he's going by in this way, and so she persuades him to eat food, and then as often as he comes by, she is showing hospitality to him, right, meeting this need. Then she knows that he's a holy man of God. Not that she didn't know before, but she has further confirmation through her interaction and association with him, that he is indeed a holy man of God. So now she wants to do something even greater for him, even more. She's already been graciously providing hospitality for him by feeding him, by providing meals for him. Now she wants to make a room, an additional room onto their house where he can have a bed and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So a room with all the furnishings, right? Everything you need where he can go, have a place where he can rest, have some comfort, some relaxation, because his is a very difficult job, right? Going here and there, preaching the word of God and putting up with hard-headed people, right? That's what he was dealing with all the time. And so what does she do? She presents the idea to her husband. Notice that she's not acting independently of her husband. She presents it to her husband. Her husband agrees Right? But she's the one that initiates. The husband says, yes, this is a good idea. And so they build the room, they provide the furnishings, and then they make it available to Elisha whenever he comes by. And then this is what he does commonly. He has a place to go there. So isn't this what she's doing, what our paragraph is talking about? Communion of the saints, meeting and caring for one another, having an obligation to love each other and doing good. He didn't force her to do it. She did it willingly joyfully, cheerfully. This isn't something that she's doing begrudgingly, right? Is there any indication of that in this passage? No, it's a joy and a delight for her to do these things. And this is how we ought to be as well. Also, she's observant, right? Elisha's not having to announce these things to her. 
He's not walking by saying, man, I sure wish there was a place for me to stay on this, on this road. If only someone would build a room for me and put a, a bed and a table and a chair and a lampstand in it, it would be really, really great. He's not doing that. He's just minding his own business, going and doing what he needs to do. But because she's observant, she's not consumed with her own interests. She's looking out for others. She notices, she takes notice of these things, and she's not doing it for others. She's doing it for him, and why is she doing it for him? Because he's a holy man of God. She knows he's a holy man of God. So when she's receiving him, she's receiving Christ. Right? When she's assisting him, she's assisting Christ. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, is what our Lord Jesus Christ said. So who will receive the prophet's reward with Elisha? The Shunammite woman. She will as well, and her husband, because they assisted in these things. So this is what we need to be doing one for another. Okay, well, we'll stop there today with our confession, and now we are going to take uh, the